rather you live your life in vanity You traded all your hopes and dreams for insanity I'm Father Harry Dean with the Diocese of Austin. I'm here today with Deacon Ronnie Lastavica, also of the Diocese of Austin. And we're in episode two of four episodes discussing restorative justice ministry, volunteering in the prison setting, and what that's like. I have just completed six years in that service, and so Deacon Ronnie asked me to sit back and reflect on the life of serving in the prisons and to be able to share that with others that may be in the midst in their own lives of uh, thinking about entering into restorative justice ministry. Today, we want to explore what it was like after the beginning of the ministry. Last episode, we talked about discerning, uh, is God calling me into that ministry, which again, by the way, doesn't necessarily have to be in the prison setting per se. It can be post-incarceration ministry, ministry to victims of crime, ministry to their families, families of inmates, lots of opportunities there. In this particular case, it was inside the prisons. And once you're in there, there is definitely a learning curve, that's what I'll call it, uh, of what I know from my life on the outside versus what life is like on the inside. So, Father Harry, first question, do you remember six years ago what struck you about being among the incarcerated? Yes, I do. I definitely do remember. And, it, and I'd call it the first item in the learning curve is that your personal understanding and my personal understanding of prisons and prisoners is probably missing a few things compared to what's actually in the prison for you to encounter once you get there. And we touched on this a little bit in the discernment part, but it's worth touching base on again. All of us now, because of television and movie programming, have been exposed to quite a number of commercially produced, entertainment-oriented versions of prison life. Some have been fictional, and and, uh, some have been uh, quasi-documentaries, and some have been uh, meant to highlight certain individuals whose crimes were, were notable. Those things have an impact on us. They give us an impression of what prison life is and what prisoners are like. But they really are missing some things. And so when you get to prison and you begin to experience these people face-to-face where their voice is in your ears, not through a television or radio device, but because they're two feet from you, and you get to see their body language and you get to see how they react to you personally and, and how you react to them, and the Spirit of God passing between baptized souls or non-baptized souls. All of that's there, and it fills in a lot of what you'll learn are some gaps in understanding from what you've been exposed to before. And let me just be clear, I'm not uh, being negative about those commercially produced uh, offerings of prison life. They're working with what they've got, and we as viewers can only receive the information with what we've got. But it's a different ball game when you go in there and it's actually the place where they were doing their filming or videotaping or however they did their their production. Um, the other thing, too, is, and, and as I mentioned in the first episode, the, the very first prison I ever went into, uh, Mabel Bassett in Oklahoma City, um, just the whole environment. Um, you know, as we all know, when you go to somebody else's house and it's the first time that you've ever been there, Among the things that you take in is how they decorate. 
is how where the furniture is situated. Uh, how much light is there? How little light is it? How different is it from where I live and how I keep my personal space compared to these people that I'm visiting? Smells. Um, every house, you know, the whole big market out there for air deodorizers and things of that nature. Well, prisons have their own different kinds of smells. Um, you know, the, the uh, incarcerated have jobs where they clean. And they have jobs where they make the chemicals that, that they use for cleaning. And those chemicals have very specific odors that you never forget. That when you smell that after the fact, you, you hearken back to your time in prison almost immediately. That would be among the, 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 uh, the learning curve there too. And closely related to all of the above uh, in the learning curve is the, the personal understanding that you have about prison when you get your first impression different from the, the, the uh, broadcast impressions, when you get your first impression, that is going to yield to a second one and a third one and a fourth one and a fifth one. And by the time you, you are, are serving over a period of time, you give yourself the license to adjust your first impressions about different people that you meet in there, officers and inmates alike, fellow volunteers, yourself. And then as time goes on and experiences increase, it's like moving to a new town and you, you experience a town sometimes negatively up front or very positively up front and then swing back the other way and then kind of seek a middle, realizing like with all places, there's negatives and positives that you're going to encounter. And so you got to be prepared to allow yourself to adjust um, based on what you have learned, what the reality around you actually is. So as the weeks went by and then the months, what did you learn, generally speaking, about the people you encountered in the prisons? Well, as a priest and also as a former television journalist, you're keenly uh, receptive to what people share about themselves as individuals, what they share about themselves as, as being part of a group. Um, whether they're a, the part of a group in a particular dorm or cell block, part of a particular group by race, by gang affiliation, um, by uh, crime committed, uh, because there's a lot of, of self-identity in prison by the, by the crime that I committed. I know other people that have committed that crime, or I'm not going to share what that crime is because I don't want people to categorize me. So you begin uh, to learn the, the life circumstances of people and how they're organized within the prison unit itself and their previous life that's attached to that, you know, what actually they lived through to get them to that moment when you now are encountering them incarnationally and learning about them as an individual. And among the many things that were very present in pretty much every prison that we serve in are people who come from a background where sexual or emotional abuse was going to be uh, prevalent. Not always for them. Sometimes it was for siblings, for their sister or their brother or their mother being abused by a boyfriend or, or a father. But in many, many, many cases, our incarcerated have been through the gauntlet of having their dignity robbed, a sense of personal worth, a possibility for being uh, prosperous in, in this life by uh, having gifts to share on the job and money to make. All of those things just rattled to their core because they've had a foundation robbed from them that a lot of people that live in families where parents affirm their children, nurture the gifts that they have, 
show them how to love, show them how to forgive. Uh, all of those things are either completely absent or they're really spotty in their presence in the growing up years. And that changes people. So you you begin to learn those things about them. And as they're there, you begin to learn what the basic needs they have what, you know, that they become survivors and they'll describe themselves that way often. You know, Father, I lived on the street forever. I just, I'm a survivor. Uh, I'll, I'll complain about something that's happening in a unit. You know, we, uh, the uh, count goes long and I'm, I'm rolling my eyes and saying, when are we ever going to get this mess st- started? And, and the, the people that are there for, that are among the incarcerated are just rolling with it because as they'll say, you know, you'll learn to survive when you have one train wreck after another happening in your life, you, you learn resiliency skills or you perish. And, and many of, of their family lives did, particularly because of the, the other thing that you learned about the folks that you encounter in the incarceration setting. Many of them grow up with violence as a standard issue. Um, it's, it's almost like hygiene. Uh, something that people learn at an early age to brush their teeth, wash their hands, uh, how to go to the restroom on their own and all that. People in many of these people's circumstances grow up with violence. Uh, The way that mom talks to dad, the way that dad talks to mom, the way that my friends and I settle our differences, the way we play, um, all of it uh, will have an element of violence attached to it. And it becomes very formative for people that, oh, okay, a normal day is a day where I consider in my mind, in my heart, in my words, or in my actions, the presence of violence, because doesn't everybody? And if you come up in those circumstances and then you encounter volunteers that don't come from that circumstance, there's some work that has to be done to be able to start the, the flow of communication back and forth and to understand each other. When you know that's where somebody's coming from, you can anticipate that in the way that you're, you're working with them and serving them and, and offering the, the love of God. Um, as a result of all the above, the abuses, the violence, you have generations of people who grow up not receiving the kind of moral compass that you and me just growing up believe everybody has. Everybody doesn't. And a lot of the people that are around you in the world that have served time in prison, that they're back out and they're trying to make their way in life, they're still trying to develop those skill sets about making decisions on a consistent basis on Christian values, in our case, but are just general moral principles that are embraced by all humanity. They're just not there, let alone practice. So they've got to learn them. They've got to understand them because they haven't been understandable before. And then they've got to start practicing them, making their mistakes like you and me do still to this day, even though we grew up in those moral values, and allowing themselves to think act and and feel in a way that the rest of us would call normal, but for them is having to learn a whole new way of life, you know, literally trying to uh, navigate their way into polite society. Um, compounding that effort is the presence in great numbers of mental illness and of anger, of anger at what happened to them as they were disrespected as youth, as they were abused as youth, as they became abusers, and now they're getting a conscience and and starting to beat themselves up about that. Uh, A lot of anger can grow from that. And then just 
plain old regular mental illness that we're all thankfully starting to recognize in the larger society as something that we just can no longer ignore. It can't just be, I'm sorry that you feel that way, uh, take a pill or go see a doctor. No, this is definitely going to be one where we all want to be conscious about what impact we individually make on the mental health of other people. That if I'm aggressive when I drive, if I yell at somebody out of frustration, uh, what that that might mean to them if they are suffering some form mild or strong or middle ground of mental illness. Well, that's in the prison too. And so you learn that and you start to do your homework about how can I most effectively preach the good news of Jesus Christ to somebody who is bipolar, somebody who does have an anxiety disorder, somebody who is chronically depressed, uh, somebody who's uh, got an awful lot of psych- psychiatric medications flowing through their bodies that makes them fall asleep in mass to not get upset about that, but instead have compassion. Um, and then there's some who stepped out of the way of life they knew um, and that had a polite society upbringing and just for whatever reason said yes to a criminal lifestyle. You know, they're in prison as well. A lot of financial crimes, the, the, uh, the, the, the temptation factor of I'll get away with this and nobody will ever know. And then the next thing you know, the amount of, of money that you made on your illegal transaction puts you at a pretty high felony level and you're going to do some time. So there was, there was that kind of folks in there as well. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the reasons many people serve time in prison may not make sense to people who never commit or never considered um, committing a crime what about making sense of the daily life in prison? How, how did you make sense of their daily life? Well, it took a while. Um, it, it took observation. It took just having the raw time of physically being in their presence, not coming in for an hour and a half and immediately leaving, uh, particularly at the Alfred Hughes unit where they were very receptive to us lingering after a service and doing uh, work for the chaplain's office where you had to go with forms in hand and, and uh, present yourself to an inmate in whatever uh, residential area they were in and saying, okay, you requested this and here's the response. Let me assist you with that. So the time and then walking along, uh, one of the things that people will learn in, if they do serve in prisons is that the structure of the prisons inside have names. And the, so the sidewalks that people go from where they live in their dorms to a classroom uh, to the chow hall, to medical, to the chapel. They call that the street. Instead of a sidewalk, it's called the street because it's where everybody moves. So it's like a little small town. And when everybody moves, when count clears and everybody's free to move from the place that they were until count cleared, um, they're able to to now get on the street and go from, to the next point A to point B. Well, just like in any small town in downtown, or if you're if you go to one of the touristy places that have the little town squares where they've gussed up all the shops and they want people there on the weekends, well, it looks a lot like that. So a lot of rubbing of shoulders, you know, people saying, "Hey, how are you?" People talking with one another, stopping and have side conversations. That includes the officers as well. You know, they get to see each other out on the street. And so when you're out there in in that uh, kind of environment, you begin to uh, pick up on what they're like to navigate their their day-to-day time. And not unlike in the movie Shawshank Redemption, you, you begin to learn that people do what they call become somewhat institutionalized. And meaning, I have to adapt to the environment that I'm in. I have a 20-year sentence, and it's a crime that committed 
that was committed with aggravation. They call them aggravated crimes, meaning I harmed somebody or I threatened to harm somebody. On those crimes in Texas, by and large, you've got to do half the years of your sentence before parole is even presented to you as an option. So now I'm in here for 10 years. And if I'm a person of any kind of resource, I'm going to look around and say, how do I how do I make sense of this? How do I find my place in this? Uh, how do I go about allowing myself to understand how I'm going to be fed, how I'm going to be clothed, how I'm going to have uh, pastime or work time? And so you get to, to witness how people adapt to the opportunity to live community life um, because it is a community, all the things. But it's different than the community you and me live in because they are having their clothing provided. They are having their food provided. They are having their medical care provided. Uh, they are having the opportunity for recreation, for education, for spiritual development provided. But it's all within that prison system that we've spoken about before with a lot of the things that people bring into the prison swirling around, the mental illness, the anger, uh, the um, not knowing how to deal socially with other people because um, my inability to deal socially with other people is part of why I, I committed the crime that I committed. So now all of those folks are together and the, the system is, is designed to have them be able to conduct their lives in a way where people don't hurt each other, where they actually, if they so will it, can make some progress improving themselves. But at the same time, as I mentioned before, on the pushback of evil, with evil flowing through the place the entire time, bidding them back to their worst selves, to norming the old way that brought them there, and them trying to push back on that. And that's part of institutionalization as well, is the, the dark side of things. And, and you have to make that conscious effort to say, no, I don't want to be part of that anymore. Look what it's got me. You know, there wasn't any upside to this. And yet, uh, for some, um, the evil one can convince them in their hearts that prison is actually an upside itself. And so that's another piece of uh, navigating uh, the, the daily life is realizing that you've got some people there that you are going to want to conduct yourself in a certain way because you don't know where their head is at that day. Uh, did they take their medication? Did they not take their medication? And as a pastoral caregiver and as a volunteer, whatever your standing is, being aware of that navigation of their daily life helps you to help them navigate their daily life. You are a breath of fresh air for them. You're not somebody else wearing the same uniform everybody else is. You're not the same officers that they see every day. You're not the same medical staff, all the different uh, input people that they have. You as a volunteer, especially on a weekly cycle, bring something that they've been hungering for distinct to you just as you are. And that's part of how that daily life is conducted as well. What about religious and faith practices? Any similarities to religious and faith practices outside prisons and any differences? Well, there are both. Um, there are definitely similarities and there are differences. Um, on the similarity side in terms of in-prison religious practice, for those who are genuinely, actively seeking God, it's the same reason that all of us who are not in prison genuinely and actively seek God. We seek the desire to be loved as I am. And let's consider now, uh, on your worst day, you yelled at your wife, you yelled at your kid, 
your wife yelled at you. The boss was ugly to you. Uh, you did something really good and your ego got the best of you. And now you're doing an examination of conscience and you're kind of feeling a little down about that. Now, because you're holding yourself accountable, you're able to humble yourself before God. If confession is needed, you can go to confession and you can come out on the other side with the the rosy glow of the Easter proclamation because the love of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has brought you back to right relationship with God and others. Now take what you and me struggle with in the outside world and look at what people are struggling with in the prison setting. And again, it's not just one individual. It's all these different individuals together. And that has an influence one person upon the other. When you hear the stories of what somebody else did with their crime, of what their life was like, that starts to have an influence on you. And it can ratchet up in a good way the holy desire to say, gosh, there's got to be something better than this. I know I am made for something different than what has brought me here and what I'm seeing in some people around me. And thanks be to God, the good things that I'm seeing in other people around me, because there are a lot of incarcerated people that really get good at evangelization because they are the absolute most credible people that there there can be. There's a program called the Field Ministry Program um, that was first started in the men's unit where a Bible-type college provides essentially a seminary-type formation for select inmates that are serving lengthy sentences who are then allowed to be peer ministers to their fellow inmates in the units that they get assigned. And right now, at one of our women's units, a similar program is being developed for women field ministers. Deacon Ronnie and I had the privilege at the Alfred Hughes unit to receive the first batch of those and be given them as uh, people to walk around with us as we made our rounds and help them in their pastoral care practices and to make their ministry their own, not necessarily because they were Catholic or not Catholic, but they were learning the ropes of actual actual face-to-face incarnational ministry, how to be intuitive, how to pick up on things, you know, how to, how to uh, read into when somebody's troubled or when I know somebody well enough, if they get a notice that a loved one has died, how they're going to grieve and whether my presence as a field minister is, is going to be valuable to them. And so that's, that's part of, of the religious faith practice. You get people that are everything from unchurched their entire life to smatterings of church. Maybe they remember the basic form of the mass when they were kids and they had the devout grandmother or, or, or parents or whatever it might be, but the crime life took them away and they've been away from church for a really long time, all the way to these people that, that grow in a sense of remorse for their crime, of repentance, of uh, believing genuinely in the forgiveness of God for who, for who they are and what they've done. And so laboring under this mountain of guilt for a long period of time that some of us just have brief exposures to, you know, th- those, would, those would be among some of the, the similarities that, of growing in faith, but also at the same time of, of um, not being so connected. I mean, how many people have some of us known who become greeters in parishes? that we, we, we give that genuine, loving welcome to somebody, and when they finally end up in RCIA, you're one of the stories that they tell. Uh, I, wanted, I got interested in this church because I was just so impressed that there was somebody nice at the door to, to welcome me and, and, and say, you were so glad that you're here. A lot of those same things kind of happen in the prison as well. Um, among the differences, however, 
are the things that have to do with the reality of the concentration of souls who come from very non-churchy backgrounds and uh, that may know nothing but the thought process of committing criminal acts, of being violent towards other people, or at least dismissive of religion in general. And so you're in that environment. Again, back to that call to, to say no to evil and to tell evil that the good news is here whether you want it or not. So some of the religious faith practices um, get, get influenced by that constant presence around souls in prison trying to know Jesus, trying to come to have a faith life, trying to be a participating Christian by doing good things and, and bringing people to, to know and love the Lord, and yet swirling around them in any given moment on their workplace, sitting next to them at the chow hall, uh, walking down that street that we mentioned before, living in their cell block or their dorm, are other people that are agitating against that. And so as you grow your religious faith practice in the prison, a, a dissimilarity there Although, if we look at our society today, a lot of the people that you're around at the grocery store or any number of places uh, might have that same dynamic. The difference is they're not going to be in your face about it. In prison, there's nowhere to go. Uh, those people are going to be around you, and they're going to be up close and personal, fishbowl style. And if you're a practicing Christian and have started to express your faith, believe me, they're going to call you out if they see you not practicing it. Now, if, if I have a tantrum with my child at the Walmart, a non-practicing Christian may or may not know that I'm a professed Christian or not. I'm not going to get any, any flack from that. But in prison, you do. Everybody's looking at everybody, and they're going to they're gonna call you out if, if you're actually not doing what you say you are as a, a person that's, that's pr- professed. Um, the other thing is that by federal law, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice must allow faith practices of what a lot of Christian people would probably not consider groups of faith, like Satanism, like paganism, like many other descriptive terms that I had never heard of before in my life. But they're bona fide groups in the eyes of the state, and federal law requires them to have the same opportunities to gather as a group for the purposes of whatever they want to call it, whether it's religious practice or not. You're in the middle of all of that as well. Add to that that for the differences that we have among Christian communions between those who are not professed as Catholic and those who are professed as Catholic, there can be tensions. Um, And I know some of your families out there have that same tension when you gather at holiday time, uh, that, that sometimes there's agreements that you make not to talk religion or politics or, you know, the hot button things. Well, the same things happens in prison too. But again, let me repeat, like I did before on some other matters, this is in a much tighter environment. You know, when you go to that holiday dinner every year, you can pray your way into it, you can endure it, and then when you leave, you get to go back home and you're not in it again. For the folks that are incarcerated, none of that gets to happen. You're going to see that person that you had a religious conflict with over and over and over again. And in some ways, I would suggest that lends a potential that you got to do the work to be able to get along with people that us on the outside of prison don't have to do. All I have to do is get in my car and drive away, and I don't have to see you again. Or I can learn when, when your time at the gym is, and I'll just do another time so I don't have to stand next to you on the treadmill and listen to you spout your stuff that I don't believe in. But in prison, it's not that way. 
in prison. They have to be able to get down to, to, to the business of either getting along, fighting, or getting transferred uh, because that's kind of the only options that you have. Um, and then, you know, just being able to say, I am who I am. Uh, I'm going to try and be the best Catholic Christian or non-Catholic Christian that I can be. Um, and then trying to be at peace with that. And I think that is also more in demand in the prison setting than it might be on the outside. Yeah, I think we see them uh, quite often. Um, the comment we'll receive from them is, I'm, I'm just tired of being tired. Yes. There comes a point where I've tried all these other paths and, and uh, the God that uh, fulfills me and, and so forth. But but once they come to that point, um, I think that's the, the beauty of uh, our, our, our Catholic Christian presence is that uh, we, we bring them nothing less than Jesus Christ himself, the paschal mystery of life, death, and resurrection, the invitation to die to those many things that we need to die to, but also seeing that death does not have the last say. We rise into a changed life, a resurrected life. No question about it. And um, the ability to be able to accept, <clears throat> excuse me, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, to move my heart or the hearts of others around me, to see the miracles of changes in people, especially if they're being incarcerated for a long period of time. And for these ways in which the Holy Spirit continues to evangelize, to welcome, to heal, to bring people to a new day in their life, we give thanks. It is our God who we serve, and it is the joy of our hearts to be able to bring other people to know that love and to begin to serve themselves. If you walk with me, brother.